God bless you and welcome to Walk in Truth Christian Fellowship Church broadcast. We appreciate and welcome all of you, our listeners around the world. Stay tuned to hear an exciting word from pastor teacher, Dr. James Sutton. Psalm 6-1, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, O Lord, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? O Lord, I am weary with my moanings. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. As I am crying, my eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weary because of all my foes. Oh, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The great and awesome Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepted my prayers. All of you who are my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 6 and we're going to continue the lesson. Uh, we didn't get out of six and one, but I just want to do a review. And it starts off, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy anger. And we discovered last week that God rebuke, wrath, or chastisement comes through his word, sometimes comes through his ministers, and oftentimes comes through his own providence in the fact that he wants to bring about his will, his way. When God rebukes, we know that it's out of love. Anytime there's a chastisement, anytime there's a judgment, and and I'm saying judgment and switching with chastisement, uh, God pours out this punishment, not to necessarily his anger, just because to be arbitrarily angry, but because he loves and he wants to correct and he wants to get his people back in line. Normally we see rebuke or chastisement when it comes to the Lord with his people, Israel, when they don't do something that he's commanded them to do or they do something presumptuously. We also are like the children of Israel. We neglect what God tells us to do and then presumptuously pursues things 
uh, that God would want us not to do. Especially in this time, I'm seeing so many people pursuing things that really have nothing to do with salvation, sanctification, or glorification. It's not that they're even paying attention to taking care of themselves, but they're looking for something extra mystical, extra spiritual in this time. And God still wants us to pursue holiness, sanctification, as we are being sanctified by him through this. It is not important that you know what's coming next so you could prophesy to someone when we're going to get out and how we're going to get out. But still, people need to be saved because as we see, sinner and saint are dying alike in this time. So the rebuke of the Lord for us would be not doing what he's called us to do for his people, not being the new light that's in the world to show the people the way in spite of what we're going through. In verse 2, we see that David is owning up to his sin and that he's seeking the mercy of God. In his day-to-day activities, David understood that he had committed sin and deserved God's wrath. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. That's what we should do. We should seek God's mercy. Regardless of us justifying our dispositions from day to day. The Bible tells us to be angry and sin not. But a lot of times what we end up doing is we end up carrying things a little bit too far. And therefore we sin against God and man himself. Um, Our transgressions which we should always be ready to come to God because he's loving God and seek his mercy and his grace should be at the forefront of our thought process that we can come before the holy God as we found out and hear hear our cry and our first cry should not always be that we get the oppression lifted but for our own sin think about the the story in the Bible where you had the, the Pharisee and the publican the tax collector coming to worship and the Pharisee said that he was glad he was not a publican because publicans were considered sinners and how dare they come to worship they could not even go into the court even though even though they were Jews they were had to go and worship in the court of the Gentiles so for one to see the other they had to be fairly close but in their proper place and he said I'm glad I'm not then I'm glad I'm not like a republican and the publican didn't look up and he saw God's mercy And Jesus asked which one went away justified. And the one that went away justified was the one who saw God's mercy. So in this, in verse 2, we see that David is acknowledging his sin and seeking the mercies of God. And we should also seek the mercies of God. When we sin also, we become weak spiritually. And it's hard for us to do the things that God has called us to do as far as exercising grace. And David understood that even his weakness from sin, his sin made his body weak, his mind weak, his emotion weak, his made his um, continence weak. Your whole body should feel weak when you sin. And that's where repentance comes in. That's the Psalms of penance. 
that we come to an understanding that God is holy and we are not and that when we sin against God for those who call ourselves saints there should be an emotional spiritual and physical reaction because we have went down the process of separation right relationship right communication even hearing God sin prevents that that hearing of God like it should and that's why we should seek his mercy and seek his repentance these are ongoing uh, characteristics of the Christian because God has given us this gift of repentance whereas in the Old Testament you see you always hear God telling them to turn in the New Testament Paul is saying if you understand the gift of repentance you understand that it is the goodness of God and you know we have a hard time saying we're sorry we have a hard time admitting that we're wrong we have a hard time telling the truth and we rather omit and believe we have done good but if you know to do good which is tell the truth and you don't do it it is sin unto you so omission is not an excuse and you can't get away with not sinning if you know that there should be a response or action or duty performed but when we don't do it as Christians and saints of God we begin to get weak and therefore we need to repent or we need to be ministered to or chastised back into repentance. We see the desire to want the body to be healed. Um, I don't think it's anything like scars or wounds, but it's that aching feeling that David must have had when he was sin. He was so sensitive to sin that when he did, it caused him a physical uh, distress. So he's seeking that. Uh, we can compare that to Psalms 41 and 4. In that Psalm it says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. That's almost like what he said uh, when he dealt with uh, Bathsheba. He said, oh Lord, I have sinned against you and you only. So there's a healing that we and need when we sin against God. The key to this passage is about the healing that's offered and knowing where to go get the healing. In the Old Testament, we talk about the bomb of Gilead. For us, the healing comes in the blood of Christ, the sacrifice, the forgiveness, that through that, through believers believing in what happened at Calvary, we have the forgiveness that heals us from sin and therefore will heal our aching body in regards to its effect, its sin's effect on our souls and ourselves. Psalm 103 and 3 says, Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all of your diseases? Who is that? Jesus. We also find peace with God and our brokenness when we sin, when we repent. Psalms 51 and 8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So then there is a rejoicing that we have when we repent. 
even though we might not have the answer or we might have to deal with the consequences down the line, we know that repentance brings about a healing. In verse 3, we have the innermost part of man being troubled when we sin. Now it's just not physical, but even the fact of my salvation. My soul is also sore and vexed or exceedingly troubled. We find that in the Old Testament, they were quite aware of what sin would bear and bring to them, which was death. And they were quite aware of the fact that Satan's job was to take their soul. The most valuable thing you have to Satan is your soul. He cares less about your body. He would please your body to gain your soul. That hasn't changed. His motive operandi hasn't changed. His his desire is to have souls in, in hell with him, knowing his final destination. In the Old Testament, they knew that. So their fear was that their soul could be captured. But we don't have the same fear in the sense of we have the sacrifice that forgave us for our sin, that saved our soul. We're in two different positions. That's why you have to be careful when you read the Old Testament and identify with them because we're under a new dispensation. They had the physical ceremonies to do to try to cleanse their sin. But we have Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, the sacrifice, and the substitute for us for sin. And he's the perfect substitute once and for all past, present, and future sins. What we are more concerned about is treasures and relationship. Treasures and relationship. Relationship with God here and others showing them about the God we serve and the salvation that's offered to all men who believe and the treasures we build up because the Bible tells us that our souls are saved because our souls are saved. What are our souls saved unto? Good works. Good works. Then we have the rhetorical question that we all ask. Oh Lord, how long? How long will I suffer under chastisement? How long will I suffer under sin? How long must I endure the pain of what I've created? And the answer is, as long as God wants you there to learn until his providence, his nature, providential nature, meaning when he decides that it's for his glory and you're good to bring you out. Remember, I, I preached a sermon a long time ago about uh, dipped in the grease and not done yet. So many times, saints, we want an instant out what took us years of formulating to get in. And there's something in the journey that God wants to show us as we're being chastised, as we're going through, as we're seeking his healing that he wants to do to us. He wants to mature us. He wants to complete us. What is that called? Sanctification. So in the sanctification process, we sometimes try to avoid the, the painful part but God is saying that's the part to which you learn we learn through our pain pain has a purpose it's to, to, to guide us into a better way so when God is chastising us and we say oh Lord how long are we going to be in this situation that we're in now nobody knows as long until God gets what he wants out of it through us we'll still be in it and the question is, 
Will I be refreshed? Will I will I be lifted up out of this? Shall I have refreshment? Shall I have peace? Shall my thirst be quenched? Shall I have light? However you want to look at it, if you're in darkness, you want light. If you're thirsty, you want water. You want to be satisfied. And you're seeking the right place, God. But you just have to remember this, saints. When you seek God, you're asking him to do it on his timetable, not yours. You may want it. Okay, now let's, 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 let's reverse that. You want it done on your timetable, but you have to acknowledge in your heart, in your mind, that when you come to God, you're asking God to take control. And upon asking God to take control, you have a desire, but you are willing to accept his desire. So you are going to accept when you come out and how you come out because he gets the glory and it's for your good. And we see the supplication of warning God and pleading with God to arise and help us through this right place, right posture, right attitude. That's most important that you humble yourself. Even though you come boldly, you are humbled and you're seeking the help of God. Let's look at uh, Psalms 13 and 1. That psalm hits us right where we live. It, it says, how long, Lord, would you forget forget me? How long? How, will it be forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Sometimes we feel, don't we, saints, that God has forgot us? And we've done what we're supposed to do. We've come to him with grace. We've humbled ourselves. We've repented. And it's there feels like there's no relief. We see that this is legitimate. Disposition of man. This is not a wicked man. Because a wicked man would not seek God. As we saw in the beginning Psalms. But a godly man who has sinned. A godly woman who has sinned. Will seek God. But has natural affections of desires of getting their themselves satisfied to get out of what sin has put them in. Sin of omission, sin of commission, sin itself, the natural sin and the sin that we commit actually puts us in certain situations. But God can get glory out of sin. In Romans it talks about the fact that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But we should not look for it to continue in sin that God's grace through his providence can abound. We need to avoid sin because we're supposed to be dead to sin where sin has no more dominion over us. Now, how does that look in your life, in a day-to-day life? It's how you carry yourself and your character in which you carry yourself. You're not going to be perfect all the time, but you should be striving to be Christ-like. Let this mind also be in you. That's in Christ Jesus. He's given us a heart of his heart. He is changing us. He's renewing our mind. So we need to tap into what's happening to us and be cognizant of it. And sin actually helps us become that in a way, in a strange way, when we sin who are saints of God, that guilt, that pressure helps us grow a little more. In verse 4, we have the phrase, return, O Lord. So for the Lord to return, the psalmist must feel the absence of God relationship breakup I want you to see that when we sin 
So he's inviting the Lord to return. I've repented and I'm asking the Lord to return back to me. Now, has the Lord ever left them? Of course, we know reading now not. But that was a real fear of them that the Lord had, would leave because of sin and turn his back on them and not have favor on them. But now I'm asking and inviting the Lord to come back to me and grace me, not with anything of deliverance per se, but knowing that the Lord is around, graces me with his presence. It graces me with with his his substance. And that if he's next to me and he's with me, I am comforted and I know everything's going to be all right with us as saints of God on this, this side of grace. What is with us? Well, what is with us is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us and lives in us. And he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. For us, it's not about a returning. It's about maintaining the contact from our perspective to him, not his perspective to us. He never leaves us, but we sure will turn our back on him. Now he's saying, return back to me. He's saying, come back to me. Whereas in this situation, the man, the psalmist, the person who is saying, is saying, Lord, return to me. When we sin, God is saying, come back to me. You see the difference? Not only do we want God to return to us and be in our presence, but in returning to us, we want him to stave back his anger, hold back his anger, as in Psalm 85 and 3. Oh Lord, you withdrew from your wrath and you withdrew from your hot anger. That's what we want God to do. Withdraw from his hot anger. For us, withdraw from his chastisement I don't know about you but I have been whooped on by the Lord and it's not a good feeling it's not a good feeling at all it's almost as if my body is being turned inside out it's, it's really a, a interesting uh, situation because it's emotional spiritual and physical and it, it's 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 but also the, the other side of that would be that our, our, when I am in a position of, the, of grace and appreciating the grace and the mercy that's afforded to me, I also have a physical, emotional, and spiritual response. Just as equal and much better than when I am being chastised. So thereby we understand that even in salvation, God's presence with us, God saving us, is by his mercy and grace and never of works. Man can't do enough to earn the goodness, the gracious, the mercy, the salvation, the sanctification, the glorification of God. Even in our best day, it says our works towards him are like filthy rags. And that that's why he's our intercessor. You don't need anybody to intercede for you to God the Father, but God the Son who was your propitiation, your sacrifice, your prince, your king, your potentate that can go before God the Father and intercede with your prayers and your supplications. But it's not your works. Your works in themselves are still not right enough. But you can come in Christ Jesus. That's why your life is hidden in Christ Jesus. When God looks at 
his son, he looks at you through his son and his sacrifice. Sometimes in this passage in verse uh, in verse 5, 6 and 5, a lot of people misinterpret this passage and they get up quite upset because it starts off with, for in death there is no remembrance of the that there is part is actually added. It says, for for in death, no remembrance of thee. It's not that in death you don't know who God is. What it's saying is, in death, the natural man can no longer worship, glorify, praise, repent to God. In death, it's over. Meaning that whatever you were supposed to do here, as God has commanded us to do, that law is now null and void. There is no more grace. There is no more mercy. There is no more religious activity. There's nothing you're going to do now to show God anything. You won't be able to show him obedience. You won't be able to show him disobedience. It is over. You have a, a, a death and you have a judgment. You have a death and you wait a judgment. Some will wait in the bosom of Abraham and some will wait in hell. But there is a resurrection to come for everyone. And there's two kinds of resurrections. But in this period of death, between now and the return of Christ, there's nothing after death. There is no more worship. There is no more going back. There is no more salutations. There is no more humbling yourself. It is over. And that's what we need to stress in this season. As we see, things are coming to an abrupt end for some, unexpectedly. And I weep knowing that there is a majority of people, not a minority, a majority of people are dying. And they were predestined to die in this way at this time. And they don't know Jesus. They don't know the salvation. They don't know anything. And there's nothing but judgment awaiting them. That is sad when they could have bowed their knee. And whatever time God gives you other than children, he gives you enough time. If you reach of age of, in the ages of age of 20s and 30s and 40s, you've had enough time. In Romans, it tells us that man is going to be without excuse. When you die, there is no more excuse. That's why you don't need to make excuses here. Just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. God already knows. You can't disappoint God, but you can surprise him in such a, you can make him happy by doing what's right. And I ain't going to say surprise is not a good word. <coughs> Excuse me. It's like you're saying you, you catch him off guard. He can be pleasantly pleased by you doing what's right, but you never really catch, you never catch him off guard when you do what by nature your old nature, you do because you have a choice and our choices have consequences. Therein goes the wrath, the chastisement and uh, the correction. Verse six, we go with, I am weary with my groanings. Awareness again of sin, the transgressions that have been committed, the body illnesses that it may bring about or of indwelling sin 
uh, just knowing that I've transgressed makes me groan. The hiding of God's face, me believing that God has left me, the psalmist uh, uh, is just reflecting on, again, his position and his acknowledgement of his emotional, spiritual, and physical continence when it comes to sin and what it produces inside of him. This flowery language about the water and I uh, make my couch with my tears. Um, these, this is what we call uh, hyperbola, meaning that it's just gives you an illusion. But if you really think, saints, how many of us really cry about our sins? I want, I want you to take the time to be honest with yourself. How many of you actually get real sick when you sin to the point that you're weeping profusely over your sin? That's what this picture is. This picture says that this disease that I have of sin that's in me is so prevalent in me and so cancerous in me that I am doubled up on the couch crying. That's what I see with this, crying out to God with so many tears that you would think that the enemy, the natural enemy is at my door and is about to hurt me. But the enemy is within me and it's an inside out job. I rarely hear of saints actually crying about their own sin. Yes, they say it hurts them, but actually weeping over the fact that they've sinned. Uh, I went through that uh, 2008 when I was put away and God showed me all the evil I had done against him in the sense of family and the blessings that he had bestowed upon me that I squandered like the prodigal son but he says he can use that for his glory there was no escaping what I had felt and I literally cried for at least a week and I don't mean like every moment, but as I laid in my sleep, I would see the pictures of what I destroyed. It's like a, a rock thrown into a calm, still water, and it makes these circular waves that get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And as the waves go out, they get weaker, but they cover more ground. And you don't know sometimes what you do that you put in motion that will have ramifications down the line that you could never imagine. And I'm telling you that you need God at that time because God can only the one that can turn that thing that's negative and that wave that goes out from it, that plant that comes up because of it, only he can turn that thing into something else. You can't do it. You want to. You want to stop it. You may have to. It's like this. I had to deal with the natural consequences, but there was some good that came out of it. If I would have never came to God, I can envision that there would have been more damage than it was. He did damage control because he's a good God, not because I'm going to be his servant and there was a deal made between me and him. No, he providentially decided to take what I had done and for me to always be in the forefront of my remembrance of the hurt, the pain, the, 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 
the lack of uh, respect, the the destroying of careers, and and that kind of thing, all the things that I counted on, and God whittled it down to only depending upon Him to restore what the locust has eaten, and and I mean the locust of my own sin, and God can do that for you. But this is just a passage where there's a hyperbole talk, flowery talk, extra talk. You know, it's like saying I'm hungry as a horse. You know, that puts a, a picture in your mind of a big horse being hungry. This groaning because of the sin of the world could also be seen in the New Testament with Jesus groaning and sweating uh, in Mark 7:34. It says, and looking up to heaven, he said to himself, he said to him, uh, Yeah. Scratch that mark 734, but he looked up to himself and he groaned. And I and 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 really I just want to he looked up to himself and groaned and sighed and began to sweat this blood and tears because of the sin of the world and what he would have to go through. Here is more verse seven. Here's more of that flowery language he talked about his eyes waste away he said my eyes waste away because of grief it grows weak because of all my foes well the biggest foe that he has is not external it's internal the sin and his eyes grow weak uh, it's, it's, it's almost you know what I want to say in, in, in a natural way it's almost like too much over the top for me. You know, all oh, the tears and the eyes, but it shows the severity of it. You know, the hyperbola talk shows the severity of it. Shows how um, uh, the psalmist looked at this, who's, you know, they have talent, songwriters. Songwriters have a way of putting things into words and let us see them as well as hear them. So this is, since this is a song, when it was sung, you were not only supposed to hear the words, but feel them also. So when you talk about your eyes, and and it tells us in verse eight, the final verse, depart from me, all you workers of evil. You know, it's, it's, it's now we're looking external, the ones who have influence over us. But I want to keep reminding you the biggest influence over you is the sin that dwells within you. And it's not external. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Oh my gosh, this is so over the top. But again, I understand it. I can appreciate it. Uh, There's times when we do have external things that come against us. And we really want God to hear our weeping. Uh, As I was going through my time of of, 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 of being in the furnace or doing my time of separation from all that I counted on and learning who God was I weep because I thought my foe was the isolation I thought my foe was this just ties me it's the uncomfortableness <coughs> excuse me it's being uncomfortable that I look at as my enemy but as I be as I become delivered from that which I am going through I see now when I look back as what made me uncomfortable helped me grow. 
What made me uncomfortable helped me grow. So the recognition of my own sin and dealing with it in, in my way of repentance, supplication, humility, coming to God, admitting it, confessing it, and allowing God to show me the way out through chastisement and discipline. I'm willing to accept it, even though it's going to be uncomfortable. And I'm going to acknowledge all the pain that I go through as I'm going through it. And now I'm doing it alone. Now, these things that I'm that I'm seeing, we should not be out here just, uh, you know, uh, just going which, every which way with this. Okay, let's look at verse six and nine. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. So now we have the Lord returning. We have the Lord accepting his prayer. There's an expectation. The Lord will hear you, not because you're good, but because he face, he's faithful and he promises he would never leave you nor forsake you. All my enemies shall be shamed. Now we have again, that which came against me now shall be shamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, we have to remember, Old Testament, God will use other nations to come against Israel for the sin of Israel. We have the internal conflict and we have the chastisement that's external on the nation or on you. Sometimes God will bring in someone else to chastise you that's not even part of the body of Christ. And they are your enemy. Okay, God will use your enemies against you to get you back in right relationship, to make you bow your knee. But God has this interesting way of looking at things that I find fascinating. When somebody comes against the child of God for God's purpose and, and uh, providence of what he wants to do with that person, then God will turn around and there's a limit to whereas he wants them to stop. And normally, since they're evil, they won't stop. And then he turns around and vindicates you by dealing with them. You look at Nebuchadnezzar. One minute Nebuchadnezzar is a servant. Next, next minute Nebuchadnezzar is out in the field eating grass and God is chastising him. So how am I your servant one minute to do your evil that brings about the, the subjection of your nation to me and hoping that your nation turn back to me and I'm just doing what I comes natural to me and now, now you feel like I went overboard and now you're going to chastise me because you said you've given me an opportunity to turn also. So it's, 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 a, it's a weird relationship that God has with his creation that are the believers and the Jews and the unbelievers. But again, man is without excuse. Your sin brings about a reaction. Your sin brings about a chastisement. Your sin brings about a correction and you can come to God but you may go through these things and do I suggest that you cry on your pillow when you sin? That's personal. But 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 I do see that if I understand the goodness of God, it's going to lead me to repentance. It's not going to make me repent. I'm going to want to repent. And then I have confidence that whatever God has used in the human form to come against me to get me in right relationship, once that has been used, God will vindicate me and raise me up above my oppressor. Yes. He will raise me up above my oppressor. <laughs>